So today I want us to wrestle with a topic that I believe is not an easy topic. Here's the, the question that, that I want us to ask ourselves today is how do we know when we are being too influenced by the world? We're going to jump into some scripture in a minute. It's going to you know, direct us a little bit there. But here's why I say I think this is a difficult topic and one that we need to wrestle with because on the one hand, we know, and we'll jump in into our passage in a minute, that it's pretty clear that as followers of Christ, we should not be influenced by the world. But at the same time, we want to have an influence on those around us. And so you know, I, I don't think the solution is to completely withdraw ourselves so that we have absolutely nothing in common with anyone around us individually and as a church. Uh, you know, I, I watched a fascinating little documentary recently about an Amish family. And I, as I watched it, I thought, you know, I think they have a much better handle on not loving the things of the world than I do. The flip side of that is I think they have almost no influence at all on people around them because there's so much separation there. So that's the part that I wrestle with is how do you, you know, kind of the idea of be in the world but not of the world. How do we you know, live in such a way that we're able to relate to people around us, that we're able to influence others toward Christ without the influence of the world necessarily taking over us. And I, I don't know that that's a, a real clear black and white kind of an issue, and that's why I say I think it's a topic that we need to wrestle with. But one of the things that I do know is this, is certainly in my mind, it's really, really important for us to be able to, uh, as I'm speaking to those of us that are followers of Christ at this point, to be able to relate to those that aren't. Not to be so different and so, frankly, sometimes kind of weird or, you know, just like, I don't understand these people. I don't think that's helpful. I look at passages like 1 Corinthians 9, 22, where Paul talks about you know, becoming all things to all people. He's relating to people in different ways. And, and the purpose of that was so that by all possible means I might save some. And so that's the goal, right, is that, that in, in relating. But the danger of that is that then how do we know when that's having too much influence on us? You know, one of the things that you've probably heard me talk about a lot recently is um, we've been talking uh, among our staff and our leaders a lot about our five priorities as a church. And there are five things that we focus on doing. And, and one of those five things is this, is that we relate to our community and culture. And so it is one of our... Uh, key priorities as a church that we want to be able to relate individually and as a church body, we want to be able to relate to our community and culture. We don't want to be so different that there's, you know, there's barriers that are put up because it's like, I don't understand where these people are coming from or, or what they're all about. Uh, and yet, as we get into the passage here in 1 John chapter 2, in a moment we'll see that the other side to that is, if we're not careful, we really can begin to take on the priorities that are of the world and not necessarily God's priorities for us. But before we get to that, let's read a couple of verses that set the foundation, set the stage for this, and give us the encouragement because this is a difficult topic and, it, and, and he is going to speak to us pretty directly about it. Let's get a little encouragement first. 1 John 2, verses 12 through 14 says, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. 
So that's some, some really good encouragement for us there uh, to start out, the, the, to say, look, let me remind you who you are. And you know, when you go through and when I go through a difficult challenge, a difficult season, sometimes we need that voice encouraging us and coming alongside us and saying, look, this is who you are. This is where you have come from already. That's what he's reminding them of. He said, look, you've been forgiven. You, you know Christ. You, you have the ability to overcome. And so I'm reminding of you, I'm reminding uh, that on the front end. And I was thinking back about that, and I thought, yeah, we, we have those times, don't we, where we need somebody to remind us of what has taken place in the past so that we can have the courage to keep moving forward in the future. Uh, the, the, the thing that my mind went back to was uh, the early days for me uh, graduating from college and, and starting out as newlyweds. My wife, Sean, and I got married the day we graduated, which is a whole other story and an interesting day. Um, but but we, we got married and, and started right away. Uh, I was going to go to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. She was going to get a job so that I could go to Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And so she's working full-time. I'm working part-time. I'm going to school. We're doing all this kind of stuff. And, and it was a busy season. And uh, get toward the end of, it's basically about a four-year program. I mean, my, my seminary degree was only a few hours short of my undergrad degree as far as the number of hours and things it took. So it was, it was a long process. But get toward the end of that and... and Somewhere close to the end, I don't know if it was maybe year two or year three of this, these four years, that I really felt like God was saying, you need to stay on and, and get your doctorate. Stay on and enter the PhD program and just kind of go straight through and do that. And so uh, we talked about that and really felt like, okay, I don't necessarily know why, but I feel like this is what God is saying do. And so I decided to do it and looked into what the requirements were, which, by the way, one of those, I'm still bitter about this. I think I still need some counseling on this. But, but one of the things that they required was you had to have two semesters of German for research purposes. Can I tell you that I never one time in all my research used any German? I, I, maybe one, I think I did one time I included something just to say that I'd done it because they told you you're supposed to do that once. I, biggest waste of time. Anyway, that was, that was another you know, full year's worth of adding on classes, these German classes. At least we got to go to a fun German restaurant with our professor when it was done. That was the, the highlight of that. But, but there, there are all these requirements. You had to take certain things and add things on that you wouldn't have had to have otherwise. And... We were getting toward it, and, and of course you had to take a big test, and I've been studying, prepara- uh, preparing for that, for this entrance exam, and, and I find out about four or five days before that there is a paper, a major paper that's due as part of the entrance requirements. Now, at that same time, I'm wrapping up uh, the first year of school. This was 1996. I had just taken my first full-time ministry position, so I was working part-time in the church took a full-time position in Garland. We, not long after that, would be moving to Garland, uprooting, going through all that. So I'm getting started in a new ministry position. Um, got all that going on, and I realized I've got four or five days to write a major paper that will be weighed heavily in whether or not I get in this program. And I'm telling you, I was ready to quit before I even started. I really was. I was like, forget it. You know, I know I've done the extra German classes. I've done all this stuff. I've been prepping. I don't think I can do it. But I didn't quit. I'll tell you why in a minute. That was when I almost quit before I started. Then I almost quit before I finished because I got into the program. 
And there are what they call seminars, basically classes, but they call them seminars in the doctoral program. So I would take one or two of those a semester. And so now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm living in Garland. I'm driving over there uh, on my days off, by the way, because my pastor made it clear that he thought it was great. I was, you know, continuing to study, but ministry was first and foremost. And so do that on your, in your spare time, all that spare time you have in ministry. So, so I'm doing that on days off and going to school and taking classes and studying at night and doing all this kind of stuff. And, and believe it or not, that was actually the easy part. So three years of, of courses, and they were mostly somewhat interesting, some of them more so than others. But, but it, was, it was stuff that I was interested in. So studying the courses, get finished with that. Uh, finished that in 1999. Well, toward the end of 1998, November of 1998, we welcomed our first child into our family. So Brooke was born November 1998. So I'm, I'm finishing up the uh, seminars. I'm trying to figure out how to be a dad. I'm you know, involved in full-time ministry. All this is happening at once. We get to the end of the, the seminars, and the way it works is you then have to write a dissertation, which is, is basically a book with about 4,000 different reference points and all these de- I mean, it's, it's very detailed of how, I mean, I never knew that I'd have to become such a grammar expert and all this kind of stuff. But there's a, a lot that went into it. And so I know, okay, classes are finished. Now it's time to start working on the dissertation. Can I tell you, after being in school, taking classes, Every semester for 24 years in a row, I get to that point, and now I have to be on my own to motivate myself to do my dissertation. There's no classes to go to. It's just kind of on your own pace, but there is a time window. You get seven years from the time you started to the time you finished. Um, So needless to say, I wasn't quite as motivated and active and working on that dissertation in the early years. And so then I decided I need to get with it, need to get going. But I still, i got a young child at home. I've got, you know, ministry that I'm trying to do. All this is happening. And it finally got to a point where the more I got into it, the more I dug into it, and I realized this is absolutely overwhelming. And so we get to about year five of the seven total that you have. And I just said, I'm done. I don't care if I get a degree or not. I, I just don't think I have it in me to finish this anymore. I'm just ready to be done. And the reason I didn't quit before I finished, and I did finish, is the same reason I didn't quit before I started. And that was because there was this voice that said, you've done this before. In this case, it wasn't the voice of God. This was the voice of my sweet wife who said, look at what, what, where we've come. We've come all this way. Look at, look at how God has been faithful. Look at how we've gotten to this point. You can't give up now. And that little extra encouragement was enough to say, okay, I'm going to stick with it. I, I didn't want to. Got it done. And uh, that probably explains why I now, you know, just shake my head when people talk about being in school. I've got, I think it's great, by the way. Uh, but, but it's enough that I was ready to be done with it. Um, but sometimes... When we're about to be faced with something difficult, we need that voice that says, remember the past. Remember how, if it's God speaking to us, remember how I've been faithful to you in the past. And that's what he's doing in these first couple of verses. He's saying to them, look, what what I'm about to challenge you with is not easy. The things that he has been saying are not easy. He's been pretty much in your face. He's called him a liar about two or three different times. You know, Uh, and so this has been some... Very direct communication, but I think what he's saying here in verses 12 through 14 is, but that's not true of you. I I believe better things for you. 
Because let me remind you who you are. Let me remind you that, that you are forgiven. Let me remind you of all this. And by the way, I, I, I just hope that that's encouraging to you to read those verses and just be reminded of what is true. Your sins have been forgiven. That you have overcome the evil one. And if that isn't true of you today, it can be. The fact that, that, that Christ died for us, he died to pay for our sins. Our sins can be forgiven. If you've not yet come to a point of trusting in Christ, then you can. And this can be true of you. You can say, my sins have been forgiven because I put my faith in Jesus. You can do that right now. And once that happens, then you can, can be included in that statement when it says, you have overcome the evil one. We have a power in us to do this. We can do it because of who Christ is in us. Not in our own strength but because of who Christ is in us. So let's keep reading then. With that in mind, with that little bit of encouragement and reminder of who you are, now let's hear the challenge. Verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So again, we see him making a similar statement. He's done this several times already. Chapter 1, he said things like, uh, you know, you can't claim to have fellowship with God and walk in the darkness. He said that, you know, if we claim that we've not sinned, the truth is not in us. You get into chapter 2, and it says that if you uh, claim to know him but don't obey his commands, that you're, you're a liar, that you can't claim to love God and hate your brother or sister. There are all these statements that are real similar kinds of things. And now this statement is that we cannot claim to love God and love the things of the world. Anyone who loves the world, he says the love of the Father is not in that person. And so, again, a real black and white, kind of a direct type of a statement. And I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you, I, I wrestle with this a little bit because as time passes and in our part of the world, this certainly isn't true everywhere, but in our part of the world, Christians in general, I mean, it's just people in general, but, but we being a part of the culture, we are incredibly affluent compared to past generations, compared to how a lot of the rest of the world lives. And so as the people of God become more and more wealthy, I think this is more and more of a challenge. And as time passes, it seems to me that, you know, again, I, I, I don't want to follow that model that says we're going to be so removed and so different from everyone around us that we can't relate to them and that, you know, there's no connection there. But how do you know when you cross that line of being too influenced by the things of the world? That, that's what we have to wrestle with. And he gives us some warning signs, I guess, uh, because the, the thing is that... It, we get used to what we're used to, right? And so living where we are, which, by the way, is not just living in America. We live in one of the wealthier counties in America. You realize that, right? The area that we live in, in general, is much wealthier than, than most. And so you get used to what you're used to. And it begins to feel normal. And the question we have to ask is, okay, am I, am I allowing that to... Um, become my standard because that's what I see around me? Or is it possible that 
that, that I'm kind of taking on the things of the world. And so he gives them some specific things to watch for in this passage, some warning signs. This is kind of like the, the warning on, on the medications, right? You see the commercials on TV, and they say things at the end of the commercial, you know, things like, uh, if you begin to grow a third arm, see a doctor immediately. You know, that kind of stuff like, okay, maybe not quite that weird, but, you know, just kind of weird stuff of look for these things. While you're taking this medication, these are the warnings, warning signs that you should look for. If you see these things, then you need to seek professional help. You need to go see a doctor if this is happening because that could be a bad thing. That's how I read what he's saying here. He's saying, let me give you the warning signs. Because it might be difficult to figure out when we are being too influenced by the world around us. So let me point out to you three things that you need to watch for. Be on your guard against. And the first one is what he calls the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh. And the flesh here, uh, associate that with, I mean, maybe physical flesh, yes, physical body, but the sinful nature. This is the desire to feed ourselves, what we, to give ourselves what we want, basically. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that word lust, I'm conditioned to, for my mind to first go to a, a sexual type of an application there, right? We hear that word, that's the first thing we think, and absolutely there's application in our culture for that. I mean, we are surrounded. We have become such a sexualized culture. We are surrounded by it, and there's no doubt in our minds, I think, if any of us, unless we're living on you know, some other planet, I think we realize that that is a temptation, that that is an issue in our culture. But it's much broader than that. It's not just limited to uh, those types of things. I mean, when we read this, the question we should ask is, okay, what are the appetites, and maybe that's a good word for us to use when we talk about lust of the flesh and appetite of the flesh. What are the things that we desire? What are the things that we hunger for and specifically feed our, our bodies with? And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, one of the greatest applications to this is literally feeding the flesh. I mean, not just in a, you know, in a, in a spiritual sense, but the lust of the flesh, I mean, food. You know, things that we put in ourselves, appetites that we have, ways that, that, that we uh, take in everything that, that we desire to take in. And, and really that becomes the issue more than anything is it's difficult in our culture to have self-control, isn't it? It's difficult to say no to things. It's difficult to, to keep uh, things in, in proper balance. And, and I think we, we realize that, we know that. But maybe what we sometimes miss is this, is that it's an underlying spiritual issue first and foremost, right? It's not just a, a physical issue. It's, it, there's a spiritual root to the appetites that we have, whatever they may be, whatever that, that application may be. And so this lust of the flesh, that's what I'm thinking of there, is things that, that we desire to, 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 to feed our flesh. And then it talks next about the lust of the eyes. And I'll tell you, I kind of wrestled a lot with this one too. Is like, what's the difference here? What's the difference between what he's describing as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes? And um, here's where I landed on that, that, that the lust of the eyes has more to do with things that we desire, whereas the lust of the flesh, like this is what I'm feeding myself with. The eyes may be more, this is what I want. Maybe don't have, but it's... Uh, it's always wanting more. Here, here's a, a word for us to apply here is the word contentment. When you're thinking about the opposite of the lust of the eyes would be contentment. It would be being content 
with what we have. Not constantly desiring more, or I, I need this, or got to have that, um, but then I'm content. First Timothy chapter 6 talks about this pretty clearly. Uh, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So godliness with contentment, he says, is great gains. It's coming to that point of saying, God, what you have given me is enough. Isn't that difficult to, to, to do, in our, especially in our society, especially in our culture? Because, you know... Here's, as, as, as I was thinking through this, thinking of it in these terms, I ask myself this question a lot of, am I being too, are my desires being too influenced by the desires of the world and not God's desires? And it's not so much a question to me of, do I desire things more than other people around me? Does that make sense? That, that's really not the issue. It's not a comparison thing, I guess is what I'm saying. It's not, it's not, am I doing better than the person next to me? The real question is, God, with all of that not part of the equation, are my desires where they need to be? Am I content in who you are? Uh, and, you know, the, the, the best way that I know to combat the lust of the eyes or to combat this lack of contentment that we can have of always looking for and desiring more is to remind ourselves of what holds real value. And that's what he was doing, again, going back to those couple of verses that we read, verses 12 through 14. I think he's reminding them, this is what really holds value in your life. This is what is most important. So what are those things that hold value in your life that you can focus on? And when we're tempted to desire something else or to go after something else, we can come back and say, no, this is what really matters. This, this, is, this is what is most important in my life. Again, I just jot down a few thoughts that came to mind. You know, one of those is that I've discovered unconditional love in my relationship with God. Um, I'm blessed to, to be able to say that I grew up in a home where I was loved well. My parents were, were great. I have a wife who loves me deeply. I have two girls who love me deeply. Uh, even about to add a son-in-law to that mix that I love and he loves me. And, and, and so there are great relationships, lots of wonderful friends and people in my life. And so that's all good. But I'm going to tell you, none of that compares to the love that God has. Experiencing the unconditional love of God is, is a, it's a life-changing kind of a thing. And so that's one of them. I think about the fact that I get to spend eternity in God's presence when this life is over. What an incredible gift that is, right? To go to a place where we are, uh, there's no more death, no more crying, no more pain. A place where... We are able to see our Savior face to face. Where we are able to worship God continually. A place where we are able to continue enjoying fellowship with other believers. I mean, just think about what we have in front of us. That's what holds real value. Or I even think about the incredible privilege it is to serve God right now. In this lifetime. I mean, how amazing is God that He would... Say, I want to bring you into the process of doing my work. You know, God didn't have to do that. He could have done everything without us, but he, he, he works through us. What a privilege that is to say, you mean God can speak through somebody like me? God can, can work through me, can serve through someone like me? 
And then in my own personal story, add on top of that, I actually get to do that for a living. Like, this is my job. How incredibly blessed am I to be able to serve God in that capacity? How blessed are you as a child of God to, for him to say, I want to work through you. See, these are things that hold real value. And we need to come back to them and remind ourselves of those things when we maybe start to get pulled away by the desire for more. Or, you know, this is the next thing that I want. No, let me remind myself of what I already have. And that's where real contentment comes. You know, a little bit later in um, the, the passage in 1 Timothy 6, we read a few verses a moment ago. But let me read a few more if you skip further down into chapter 6. This is a great reminder, too, of how to have contentment in our lives. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Catch that? Who richly blesses us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation of the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Love that reminder. You know, not to put your hope in those material things, but to put your hope in God. And how do we practically do that? We practically do that by being generous with what we have, by not being closed-fisted with the things that we have, by, by, by being open-handed. What God has given me, He has given as an opportunity to, to bless other people, to, to give back to kingdom work. That's a great way to develop contentment. Because if I see myself just as, a, as an avenue for God to kind of you know, bring things in and then pour them back out to others around us, uh, that'll keep us from the, you know, i got to hold on and have more for myself. So, lust of the flesh, things that we desire uh, and, and feed ourselves with, the lust of the eyes, the things that we are constantly wanting, even if we don't have them yet. And then the third one he talks about is the pride of life. And I, I think this one can be boiled down to one issue that I suspect at some level or another every one of us wrestles with, and that is wanting to put me first. Wanting to make life about me, my comfort, my desires, and what I want. And I know uh, many, many people in my life who are incredibly unselfish. Many of my own family members that I look up to in that way. And they're great examples for me of what unselfishness looks like. But I'm going to tell you, you take even the most unselfish person, and there's still an issue of, I want what I want for me. We, we all battle with that. Maybe some to a greater degree than another, but Jesus had a lot to say about this, didn't he? He had a lot to say about how the first will be last, the last will be first. He said, the greatest among you will be your servant. He even gave a, a, a parable, told a story about, you know, kind of if, if you go to uh, an event or a banquet, don't desire the seats that are the most prominent ones, but, you know, take another. Don't try to put yourself forward so that everyone can see and honor you, uh, but to have the humility to, uh, you know, to, to just not have that, that me first kind of mindset. And so I don't think Jesus could have been clearer about this one, but that life is about submitting to God. Um, the, the challenge is that we do live in a self-promoting me first kind of a culture. And you know, a lot of us get that this is important. A lot of people, particularly in this room right now, and maybe those 
joining us online as well, maybe kind of recoil a little bit against that me first, kind of let me, you know, put myself up front and, and, and grab the spotlight. Um, maybe that's not your temptation. But on the flip side of that, I think it's, it's important to say this, that avoiding the pride of life does not mean that we have no self-confidence uh, or no self-worth. Does, does, does that make sense? It doesn't mean we go so far to the other end that it's like, well, you know, I just, in humility, it's like I, I've, I've got to just think so poorly of myself. That's not the point. I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus never struggled with uh, issues of self-confidence. He just he didn't. He knew who he was. He knew his identity. And yet he still demonstrated incredible humility. He still said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So both of those can, can go hand in hand. It's not necessarily a matter of, I've got to think of myself so poorly, uh, but that I just choose not to have to have the, the spotlight and what I want. And, you know, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's more dramatic kinds of things. Sometimes it's more subtle. Uh, one of the things that I've, that I've found myself doing a lot lately is you know, I, I love to tell stories. I love to have conversations with people. I find myself really feeling a strong urge to jump in all the time and tell my story. You're like, why, why is that? Why is it so important to me that my voice be heard? I think that's a subtle um, application of, of pride, right? I want to jump in. I want to tell this because this relates to me and my life, or I've experienced something similar to that. So not always, you know, things that, that, that may seem so uh, obvious but more subtle sometimes is, is they can come up too. All right, we need to wrap up. Verse 17. Why does all this matter? Let me just close with this. It says, The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. He's reminding them, look, this is why this is so important, because you have an eternity to look forward to. It's, it's about playing the long game here. Yes, giving up some sacrifices now. Yes, being willing to, to say no to some things, being willing to humble ourselves, being willing to be content with what we have, but understanding that we have an eternity coming where we will be richly rewarded for our faithfulness. And we should have that as a mindset. It is not a selfish, wrong thing to be motivated by the desire to be faithful to God and and say, Lord, I want, to, I want to honor you in what I do. I want someday to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That should be a motivation. And he reminds them of that at the end of this little passage of Scripture. That's what we're shooting for. So, I encourage you to wrestle with that a little bit. I don't know that this is one of those easy answer kinds of things. How do we know when we're being too influenced by the world? Sometimes it's subtle. But let's keep our, our, our eye out for these things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when we see those things and are honest enough with ourselves to acknowledge it, then we can say, okay, God, help me take a step back here. Let me deal with this issue because more than anything, what I want to do is be right with you. I want to honor you in all that I do. Let's pray together. Father, I, I do pray today 
that you would help us to see things clearly and um, on a, a topic that gets pretty clouded. Uh, and it, it may be difficult sometimes to, to um, distinguish between the influence of the world around us and, and, and what you desire for us. So I, I just pray for clarity there and I pray for faithfulness and obedience to trust you fully. In Jesus' name, amen.